In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Hello, and thank you for tuning in for the Root of All Success podcast with me, the real Jason Duncan. This is where I interview successful entrepreneurs and talk about how they grew their incredible companies. And I have this theory that there are five keys to success that every entrepreneur has that they use to grow their companies. And, and it's through this podcast, we're going to find out if my theory is in fact correct. We're going to talk with very successful entrepreneurs on how they started their business, how they grew their business, talk about their lives, talk about how they reached success, what success means to them, etc. And we're proud to be syndicated on the C-Suite Network, which is a network. It's a premier source of the world's leading business podcast for C-Suite executives, business executives, entrepreneurs, etc. So we're grateful for their support and happy to be on their syndicated network. If you're listening on a podcast player, we appreciate you doing that. Please make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you for, for being here and watching on YouTube. This is video and audio. And so there's we're going to try to make sure that the audio folks don't get mad at us for talking about things that we're seeing in real life. Because I know when I listen to podcasts and it's a video podcast, but it's audio, they, they forget that the people in the audio can't see what they're talking about. But this podcast is being recorded in the Matador Room at the Standard at the Smith House in Nashville, Tennessee. And for those of you to watch it on YouTube, you can see this beautiful room that we're in here. If you ever visit Nashville, you've got to come visit the Standard, where that's 18,000 square feet of Southern sophistication and style, where you can smoke cigars, drink bourbon, you can hang out, have a very nice steak dinner. It's owned and operated by the one and only Josh Sterling Smith. It's a fantastic place. It's my happy place. I love hanging out here. I love being at this place. So happy to be here, honored to be a guest in the Matador Room today and a member of the Standard Club. Today's episode is sponsored by Energy Lighting Services. They are the LED project experts. Now, if you own a commercial building anywhere in the United States that's at least 50,000 square feet, you need to talk to Energy Lighting Services because they specialize in retrofitting your lighting in that building to LED lighting. And the reason you want to do that is to increase your cash flow. It reduces your energy expenses by as much as a third, increases cash flow, I mean, why would you continue to pay more money for electricity than you need to, right? So that's what they do. You need to look them up at 855-270-3300 or online at energylightingservices.com. Make sure you told them that you heard about them on the Root of All Success podcast with the real Jason Duncan, and they will have a very special offer for you. Now, on with the show. Let's do this. So what can you accomplish with a bachelor's degree in genetics and religious studies. <laughs> so you could be the project manager for a $50 million company. You could be the chairman of a, a chairman of the board for an angel investing company. You could manage over seven and a half million square feet of commercial property that you and your team own. You could run a family office with over half a billion dollars in assets under management. And you can even start your own private equity firm and return 15% internal rates of return for your investors and not a single one ever loses any money. 
That's what you could do with a degree in genetics and religious studies, or at least one person did that. And that's my guest for today's show. In fact, he has a bachelor's degree in genetics and religious studies. He's married to a beautiful lady. They have six amazing kids. Please meet my honored guest for today's show, Mr. Andrew Kilpatrick. Thank you, Andrew, for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. So tell us, and we want to know how you went from degree in genetics, which I don't think I've ever met a person with a degree in genetics, but to degree in genetics and religious studies to being an uber successful entrepreneur. How did that happen? By accident, entirely by accident. I was working construction straight out of high school. I got married. We had one kid, another on the way, and I was not thrilled with my career path. And I was wrestling with that for about six months. And my wife finally got tired of living with me, moping around the house. And she said, figure out what you want to do and go do it. And so I thought for a few weeks and came back and said, I want to go be a doctor. I want to help people. I want to go overseas and work where they don't have access to medical care. And she said, well, I wasn't expecting that. What would that look like? And I said, I think I should probably go to college. And so I did. I quit working at the construction company, got some jobs where I could go to school full-time. She started working part-time, put me through college, and it's like a lot of things in life. I just was really curious. At that time I was going to school, genetics was a pioneering major. It just was not well-known, well-understood. The, the genomic project had just started, and so I just was curious. And as I took more and more classes, eventually became obvious I was going to get a major whether I, I apply for it or not. And same thing with religious studies. I just started taking some classes and I just loved to learn about. I actually, it was one professor I loved to learn from. So I took every class he, he taught and I was one class short from a minor. And so I took another class and ended up, so it's all, all kind of by accident. And then after, after college, in, in between undergrad and graduate school, I decided to take a year off to replenish the coffers and knowing that medical school was going to be a big undertaking and take a lot of time and focus. We had three kids at that time. I wanted to spend a year with my family and that year turned into a lot, a lot more. So I deferred my enrollment for a year at medical school thinking I'm going to go back to it. And I never did. I ended up with a, I would say a really fun career. Yeah. Well, so genetics, religious studies, kind of by accident, not not necessarily on purpose. But then you didn't do the medical stuff. You didn't you didn't go into those things. You didn't even use your religious studies degree, at least as far as I could tell by your story. So how did that move from, you know, young married guy, kids early degrees that you're not technically using? How did you where did entrepreneurialism, where did that spark start for you? So my dad always worked for himself. And so the idea of working for somebody else long term wasn't anything that I always knew I wasn't going to do it. I always knew that eventually I'd be my own boss. And I always knew I would make a terrible long term employee. I didn't want to be somewhere for 50 years and get a gold watch. I think part of this, so I didn't ever think of it as being an entrepreneur. I just sort of always knew I was going to work for myself, whether I was a solopreneur or doing my own thing. As a doctor, you work for yourself I mean, you work for your patients. But so I don't think I ever made a conscious decision around that. I just sort of knew. And then it just, I guess, kind of bubbled up through different choices, going to school. In between undergrad and grad school, I, I took a job working actually in the family business for my wife's grandfather. And it was, it was, so I, I went in. And at the time, a medical school in Northern California said, hey, if, if you want to go do some outreach, we'll defer your enrollment and you can go and do outreach as a non-traditional student. 
uh, being married, kids. I was a non-traditional student. They were trying to do a lot more outreach to that, that group to try to get more folks in. They felt like that made a more well-rounded medical student. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. Just need a job with some flexibility. So I went and, and talked to my grandfather-in-law who had a big commercial real estate development company. And I said, look, I've swept floors. I've run projects. I've bid work. I purchased. I've done anything. I just need a job that I have some flexibility. I can be down in Fresno at, at a you know medical school conference and be able to represent this school. And he listened patiently and said, I don't have a job for you. I said, you have 400 people working for you. You can't, I mean, I'll do anything. Like I don't need to make a lot of money. I just need something. And he said, look, if you want to dedicate your life to this business, I have a job for you. But if you don't, you're taking a job from somebody who does. Oh, that's good. And I said, okay, thank you. And I went home and I told you know, my wife, goes, how'd it go? I said, I didn't get it. That's crazy. I'm going to call. I said, no, no, don't call. I said, he did offer me a job, but only if I didn't want to go to medical school. And my wife said, take the job. She goes, I'm tired. You're, I mean, we've worked really hard. We got these kids and you know, it'll be 10 years before you're even, before your first paycheck. Cause I wanted to be a surgeon four years of medical school, one year of internship, and five years of residency. So she said, it's, it's 10 years before you're even making any money. And we're going into debt on that. I was completely intransigent. I'm not going to do it. And after about three weeks, she changed tacts and said, how many people, if you can go be successful at, you know, learn from my grandfather, go do what he did, how many people could you send in your place? Because if you go overseas or you go help people who don't have access to medical care, that's one set of hands, one pair. But if you can go be successful, could you send two or five or 10? What's the multiplier if you go and take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you? And, you know, I'm pretty good at math and I could do the math on that and realized there's going to be a much bigger force multiplier if I go do something else and send other people with the heart, but not the opportunity to go. So I reluctantly went back. I actually deferred my enrollment because I held, I kind of held in the back of my mind that I'm just going to go prove her wrong and come back and enroll in medical school next year. So I deferred my enrollment and I worked. Actually, it was funny. So I said, look, you do commercial real estate. You're vertically integrated. I'll do anything except go do brokerage. I think brokers are, you know, one step above or maybe a half step above used car salesmen. I just thought I do not want to go. I just knew the ethics of it. Didn't align with my values. And he smiled and said, you know, if you're going to know this business, that's your lifeblood. So if you're not willing to do that, you don't belong in this business. And I said, yes, sir. And I went and I got my agent's license and I sat back in the back, had no idea what I was doing. And one thing led to another. So you actually used the word in your story. You said, your wife said, if you could go be successful at this other thing, mm -hmm. right? You could then send all these other people to go do the things, the mission that you had in your heart to go do the passion that you wanted to accomplish. So let's talk about how you did make that pivot mentally from, okay, medical school to I'm going to go do the, the broker job, which I, you know, think, you know, apologies to all brokers listening, but, but you know, that was his perspective at the time and he, yeah. and he became one, right? So now, fast forward all these years, you obviously didn't go to medical school. You didn't go, you know, do surgery on people in third world countries, but you've probably sent a lot of people over there to do those things. So tell us what you do now. What is your main business now? Because I, I listed in the intro all these things that you've done with project management and brokering and family offices. And so tell us what you do now. Let me just say to about the brokerage, a lot of what you'll hear in my story is that there was a lot of ignorance about a certain industry or job that I thought I knew 
and then you get into it and you don't. There's some great people in brokerage and and uh, I didn't understand, but I just had this opinion. I'd formed strong opinions that were uninformed. <laughs> uh, that was one of them. So what I do now is I build enduring businesses from lower middle market companies, which is a another way to say I do private equity. I buy businesses, I make them better, and I sell them. And the way I do, do you want to talk about the way I got there? Or do you, uh, yeah, tell uh, us how we how you got into that. So. So I started working for my grandfather-in-law. I went back for six months and he didn't talk to me. I didn't know what I was doing. I just was calling people and I found some commonality. So Friday nights at about 5.30, that was the best time to call on business owners because everybody else had gone home, but business owners were still there and there's no gatekeeper. So I found that just working a little bit late, especially on Friday when all the other brokers or agents were taking a three cocktail lunch, which were more popular back then, but they'd take off at noon. They'd never come back. And I was dialing for dollars, just calling, how can I help? When's your lease expired? Just getting information and trying to support other brokers and talk to the asset management folks. I just was a sponge. I wanted to learn everything because I, I thought if I'm going to do this, I want to do it really well. And I saw a lot of tension in certain relationships because people didn't want to, like the broker didn't want to get all the information, which left the asset manager frustrated that there was a gap and then they were chasing it around. And so I built bridges with the folks that I knew were going to be important for me, legal, asset management, capital markets. And they taught me a lot. And that's that's another thing I learned. People love to teach. They love to pass on knowledge if you're curious and ask questions. And so I was just being poured into and I was a sponge. But after six months, my grandfather, you know, I thought I was going to get some mentorship and he didn't talk to me. And nobody else back there other than carry the garbage out. They, like I just got no respect back there, but I was just dialing for dollars. Friday afternoon came and about six months in and he would walk back and look around and say okay so what's up and he'd go to each broker and go what's up what's up he wanted to know the deals he liked to be involved in them and and friday afternoon there's nobody there but me it was like one light on over a desk it was dark in the whole place it was like those motion sensor lights and so it's literally all the lights had gone out except over my desk and so he walks over and he looks at me and goes so what's up and I'd just been waiting for this moment. I was ready. And so I said, I've got this deal. I've got this deal. I don't, need even, I don't even know what I'm doing, right? But I've talked to this person. They seem open. And we talked. We spent the next couple of hours just talking through those deals, those opportunities, what I'd turned up. And at the end of it, he stood up, he smiled and winked at me and then walked out. And I went home that night and I said, I think I just passed a test, actually. And on Monday morning, he threw a, walked into my office or walked by my desk, threw a master tax guide which I didn't even, I mean, I did like the turbo tax, right? I had nothing about the tax code. And he threw a, a, a thick book, a master tax guide on my desk and said, read that. You're going to need to know it. And I said, yes, sir. And then he started bringing me into meetings I didn't belong in. And he'd say, sit down and shut up. Yes, sir. And I'd take, take notes. And then afterwards he'd say, so what'd you learn? And so it became embarked, I guess, on a year and a half long mentorship process under him where he was teaching me all the time. One time I remember getting paged, you know, come to my office. And so I came to his office, had called Ashley and I said, Hey, I'm with your grandfather. I don't know where we're going. I don't know when I'm going to be back, but I'm okay. Because this, <laughs> this is kind of pre-cell phones, you know, yeah. like, I think we shared one and we get in his car, doesn't say anything. We just drive, we're talking deals and we get to the airport and he had a corporate jet and we get onto his jet. Like, where are we going? We're going to Phoenix. 
And then we were living in Northern Cal at the time. I said, okay. So we go down to Phoenix. He goes and speaks at this group of industry leaders. And then we go out to dinner and we head back. And I'm just the guy with thunder. Like I'm nobody. Nobody cares who I am. That's fine. You know, I'm just the guy accompanying it. And my grandfather-in-law had started his career as a locksmith in a key shop. So he just was making locks and keys to the building trade and then started doing builder supply and has a really incredible story. But we're flying back on his airplane and they'd picked us up in a Rolls Royce. I mean, like I, again, this is way, this is pretty heady stuff for me. I'd never experienced anything like this. And we're flying back and it's just he and I in the back of this jet. And I've got this light on because I'm doing all, I'm now catching up with all my work for the day. I think he's sleeping and he looks up at me and he says, can you imagine this? I'm just a key maker. And they laid his head back down. And I was just struck at his humility that here's a guy who has been extremely successful that has forgotten more than I'll probably ever know and is in demand for to speak. And he's been just wined and dined. And yet he still sees himself as just a key maker, just a very humble key maker who a lot of good things has ha- had happened to. So it really stuck with me that despite all the success that he had achieved, there was a great humility in his in his heart. Yeah. And so how did that, like, that's an amazing story. I want to dig into some of those points later, but how did that lead to now you're buying and selling companies? Like that has nothing to do with it on the surface. So how did that lead? That's a great question. So fast forward, we started a family office. We had a, a vertically integrated development company. So capital markets, asset management, uh, development. Now, some people won't know what a family office is. Would you give me like a 30 second, what that means? Yeah, family office. So uh, uh, family offices come in lots of different shape, sizes and purposes. Our family office, we had a big portfolio and there was a lot of outside partnerships that were involved in, in some real estate transactions, deals, investments that, that we had done. And we wanted to have a little bit more flexibility and a little bit different timeline, horizon, investment horizon, and purpose around managing some of those assets. And so we started the family office with with my grandfather-in-law, myself, and another partner to manage those assets separately, primarily real estate, but there was other things as well, business investments, debt, instruments, and things. And so we started that really with the goal where we didn't have to lump it in and kind of manage it along with all the other assets. And then as happens, we kind of got a little bit bored. We didn't want to just manage. So we said, well, let's go start building some buildings. And so we did. We started buying land and building buildings. And and then we said, well, you know, this is 2009, I think. And we were down in Palm Springs and we looked around at all these foreclosed homes and said, there's got to be an opportunity here. So we started buying foreclosed homes. And over two years, we bought and sold 200 homes. We flipped them in Palm Springs. And another friend came and said, I'm thinking of opening a restaurant. And we, and I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. I was just learning on the job. Yeah. And, and so just one thing led to another till we were continuing to manage a lot of different assets, all kind of within a family or very close ownership. That's kind of what our family office did. And through the downturn, through the, the Great Recession, 2008, starting in 2008, I would sit down with business owners and they would say, I need rent concessions. I'm, you know, my business is off and debt and all this stuff. And so I'd tell them all the same thing. Your last three years tax returns and year-to-date financials. And let's just figure out a path forward. Because if we're going to be successful, we need our, our clients or tenants to be successful. And over dozens, maybe a hundred tenants sitting down with them and going through their financials, I got pretty good at reading financials. And I got pretty good at recognizing who was going to make it and who wasn't and why. And 
At the time, I didn't realize. For me, it was a necessity. I wanted to keep my buildings full. I wanted to keep them occupied. Even if we were underperforming, I still wanted to keep them having rent coming in and covering expenses. So it was a necessity for me to do. It wasn't programmatic. It wasn't really planned. But that ended up kind of leading into some other things. Yeah. Taught you how to look at business from a critical eye and what businesses are valuable and have a probability of success. And that led to you buying and selling businesses? And it led me into first learning how to have very difficult conversations around things of identity, issues of legacy and heart. And if somebody started a business and they're on the the brink of bankruptcy, losing their house, you don't go in guns a blazing, but you also need to have a, a lot of truth in that conversation. And so learning how to do that, how to both honor the person, respect what they've done, but also be able to have the honest conversation about what you see and not always with a specific outcome, but sometimes you had to get to that certain point. And so learning how to guide that conversation to an end, and that's just repetition for, and that's, that's, what I found was it was, I was really bad at the beginning, but through just a lot of conversations, you end up kind of learning how to navigate those. And again, this is, these are skills I would, I now use all the time every day. At the time it was all necessity. So I learned over time uh, that I really liked solving business problems and I I solved them primarily through real estate. So I would get invited in, I have 40,000 feet production and and we need 60,000 feet. And I'd walk through and say, what's your opportunity? And we'd talk about where their marketplace was, what they, where they were in the marketplace. And I say, you need eight, probably 100,000 feet and we'd negotiate and, and maybe settle on 80,000 feet. You're going to regret that because the opportunity, if you do this, you're going to need to add two more lines. You're only adding one, for instance, of a production company. And eventually that we'd build that 80,000 feet, they'd move in and 12 months later, they'd call and say, you're right, we should have done 100,000. I found that once the project was underway under construction, I didn't love to go out and walk the site and watch the wall. Like it was, it was fun, but I really love solving the strategic business problem. That's what really kind of drove me and what I enjoyed about the process. So I surrounded myself with people who really love to put buildings up or really love to manage the tenant relations afterward because I didn't love those parts. I liked working with entrepreneurs, solving problems, but I didn't necessarily like to manage those things. And so I had a great team and I've been very fortunate with people. And your company now, tell us the name of your company now and specifically what it is that you're doing today with that. So my partner, Mark, and I started comparing notes. I moved to Nashville two years ago from California and didn't really know why we didn't. I'm a strategic guy, and this was the least strategic move for me. No network, no relationships, no opportunities that I was aware of at the time. But my wife just felt like this is where we needed to be. We moved here, and I just started talking with people and telling them about my story and what I'm about. And that led to a conversation with a guy named Mark Graham, who eventually became my partner. But I just told him, look, I believe that business done right is the greatest force for good on the planet, that it allows ideas to be released into the world. It gives dignity and connection for people. It stabilizes communities and families. It's the lifeblood of governmental and charitable organizations, that it's done more for humanity than just about any other force. So I believe the best thing that we can be doing is building great, enduring businesses. And he said, well, me too. And I've done that in private equity. And I said, well, I've done it over here. And eventually comparing notes, we said, well, what if we did it together? And so that's what we focused on. And, you know, there was, I think there's always a tension 
between wanting to get scale and how do I grow this and amplify this and focusing on where you have the most joy in what you're doing. Do we want to go after, you know, $50 million in EBITDA or $20 million in EBITDA and these bigger companies? For me, at least, I looked around and just said, you know what? Most businesses in the United States are not big businesses. They're lower middle market companies. Those are the ones that are the most engaged in communities. Those are the ones that employ. And so even if the financial opportunity is not as great, I think it actually has the biggest impact. And so that's where we chose to focus. So companies with 2 million to 10 million EBITDA will go up to 15, but really our sweet spot is 2 to 10 in EBITDA. And local regional businesses that are in some sort of transition. Maybe it's a succession, maybe it's a spinoff of a bigger company. You know, having my background in both the family side, the family office side, understanding identity and legacy, having the discipline of running, you know, doing IPOs and running public companies and running private equity backed companies, we really have a good marriage of understanding those companies in transition and then how to take them from where they are to become an enduring business. So you've got, I love the perspective that business done right is one of the greatest forces for good in the world. I love that. I love that concept. That's quotable. It's good stuff. And I think a lot of our listeners will also agree because they're, they're business people and they want to do business right. So talk about success. Let's get, because that's really, this is the root of all success. So you've been at least in my estimation, based on my relationship with you, what I know about you and the story that you just told indicates a pretty high level of success. But it's always interesting to me to hear somebody answer the question, well, do you think you're successful? Like, what do you think? Do you think you're a successful person, a business owner? By today's, by my standards now, no. And yes. So no, because, you know, I read a a book called Conversations with Bono. I'm a U2 fan. And so in that book, U2 had just, they won all the Grammys. They were the biggest act in the world. They'd, They'd achieved the pinnacle of success. And some of Bono's bandmates were asking, why are we still pushing so hard? Why are we still... And Bono's response was, until the music that we play perfectly replicates the music that's in my head and my heart, we're not successful. And I love that definition. I've just, I absorbed that 20 years ago when I read the book, said that's my definition. Until what I want to do in here is is faithfully replicated in the world around me, I'm not successful. But I've also, on the other side of, I guess, my life, I have a wife who loves me and who has bared with me, I guess, as I've become a better and better husband and a better man over the years. I've got great kids. I've got six kids, 23, 21, and 19. I'm going to be a grandfather here. That's kind of rocking my world a little bit. I've got a 10, an 8, and a 6-year-old. And so I've got a great family. I get to wake up and do what I love to do every day with people I love to do it with. And, you know, there's still hard things and you know, the, the challenges of living and, and relationships and work. But in that regard, I am very satisfied with with where I am. Well, you know, one of the things that I teach a lot in my strategic consulting and coaching business is that success, if you really look at what success means, it really has not as much to do about wealth and money or fame as many people think that it is. You know, the guy driving the Ferrari or the Lamborghini, you think that guy's successful? He might not, might be, might not be. That really doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. What success really is, is achieving the desired result. And that's, what I think, what Bono said much yeah. more eloquently. But if you, if you have a desired result, a goal in mind, this is what I want to accomplish, and you achieve that, that's success. Yeah. So to that degree, it sounds like you have achieved a lot of success, but there are 
you know, goals grow, you know, and there's more to come. And I think that's where you're heading. So let me ask you a couple of questions around this concept of success in your life. You've been that, that broker or grandfather-in-law, right? The grandfather-in-law, successful company. He was a key maker, turned into a successful company, the private jet. Here you are, you know, living now in Nashville with a brand new partner, brand new company doing private equity, buying businesses, building businesses, selling businesses. All of that is fantastic. So my theory is, is that there's five specific things that show up in every entrepreneur's story who's successful. And and it starts, I believe, with passion. And the way I describe passion is that it is it is this willingness to endure. It's not necessarily excitement and joy about it because that wanes. It comes and goes. But this willingness to endure is, is what passion. So think back to your story. Do you see this willingness to endure? Because I see it in, in how you t- told me your story. But, you know, you endured through those being a broker and you didn't want to be a broker. You endured through that. But it was there that you learned how to be successful. So talk about how passion was a part of your story as an entrepreneur. I think first off, I'll just say I think you're 100 percent right. And passion was something that for me has evolved. I've always been a learner, so I'm always curious. So being a broker was about learning the business. That's and I think I talked about that. I was I was a sponge. I wanted to learn all about it. So that for me is really one of my passions. As I got better and better at the development business, I found my I didn't love doing what I had to do. And it was extremely lucrative, provided very well for my family, and I hated going to work. I hated it. And in that time, because I'd been through two different family successions, one planned, one unplanned, and I dealt a lot with legacy issues and worked with a lot of of entrepreneurs, people started asking me if I'd come help them kind of navigate, like, you know, Junior doesn't want to take the business over. I don't know what to do with this thing. And I realized now in hindsight, it was pro bono consulting. But at the time, I just was trying to help friends navigate difficult things that I could use some of my experience to help them kind of process and understand. And at the end of one of those conversations, you know, I'd spent kind of a better half of a day with somebody and they looked at me and said, well, why don't you buy my business? You know it better than anybody else now. And I was, Jason, this is how, this is, you talk about like just ignorance. Like I didn't know you could do that. Like I'd built businesses and sold them. I didn't really think about buying somebody else's business and growing it. It never occurred to me that that would be something that I could do. So just dumb luck. He asked me that. And I ended up thinking in my head immediately, I go, I wouldn't touch your business, right? Because you have not done these things, right? And I knew what he needed to do, but I thought, I don't want to necessarily buy that. But it it was like a light bulb went on where I thought, if I could figure out how to do that with my life, that would really jazz me up. I would love going to to work every day if I could figure that out. And it took some time between, you know, there's there's a, a difference between when a seed is planted and when it matures and bears fruit. And that felt like there was a seed planted in my heart that said, all these experiences that you've had in walking with businesses and understanding the financials and all the kind of the strategizing around what the business needs, all these things are ultimately going to culminate in this other thing that you get to do. I never would have had those opportunities had I not walked through. So it wasn't a passion at the beginning that I knew what it was and I wanted to pursue it. It was just a, a real curiosity and a learning about how things work and eventually a discovery that that's what I want to do. Yeah. Well, and you know, going back to your story as a broker, you were successful at it in terms of you made good money. I mean, it was, it was lucrative, et cetera, but the willingness to endure wasn't present. You were like, if I had to do this for the rest of my life, you didn't say this, but I can imagine you were like, I do not want to do this for the rest of my life. It, this, even if I made a million dollars a year, not interested. 
But now you found this opportunity in private equity and buying and selling and building businesses. Okay, you're willing to endure for that. that that's exciting. It's yeah. I get up and go to work and it's exciting. So let's talk about the second uh, second P in my five P's of success. First is passion. The second is place, being in the right place at the right time. And here's what I heard in your story. And I, I bet the listeners and the viewers on YouTube will understand this is that your wife, and we'll talk about her being the right person and her grandfather in a moment, because that's the third P, but the place, like being there in that place and going to work for him in that place sounds to me like that's right place, right time. And that led to your success. You agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and I don't think you can remove yourself from your time and place in history. It wasn't by accident that I was there. I think there was when I was younger, this desire to, you know, if I would have been born here, if I would have done this, boy, I would have, should have, could have. And when I look back now, I go, I was exactly where I needed to be at exactly the moment in time I needed to be there. And I didn't necessarily, I couldn't define it there, but in hindsight, I, I can. That at that stage of his life, when we launched the family office, he was 80 years old. Who starts a business at 80 years old? Like nobody I know, right? But I also got to see what it looked like to be successful as a human being, as a man, as a, as a husband, as a dad, after having made a bunch of mistakes. And so that and the lessons I learned in that have influenced a lot of the way I think and what I do today in a way that I couldn't have gotten had I mentored somebody who was younger, who was still driving forward. And so, yeah, just you can call it right place, right time. And I that totally resonates with me. That's exactly what happened. Well, and you said that it's not by accident. Here's what I think people misunderstand when I talk about that one of the keys to success is right place, right time. Well, a lot of people are victim, have victim mentality. Like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just never, you know, I'm never there. I haven't, I haven't hit that sweet spot yet. Well, you went and did it. Like you and your wife had the conversation. What am I going to do? And she's like, go work for my grandfather. Like you forced yourself into that opportunity where that became the right place, the right time that led to success. So all these people that you know, have this victim mentality. Well, I'm never, I'm never at the right place. Well, what are you doing? Are you staying at home playing Nintendo? Are you staying at your office 40 hours a week? Or are you going out and, and going to lunch with people and going and joining clubs and doing things where you're rubbing elbows? Because you never know where that right place may be. You, you hit on what I think is, if I could say the core of it, and I was having this conversation with my 19-year-old this week, is don't focus on the what or the where. Focus on first who. Because who you are, if you focus on who you are and becoming that person, who do I want to be today, next week, in the future, then eventually the the what, the where, the how, the what, all those things start to work themselves out. And I think that's probably the lessons I learned from mentoring under somebody who was at the end of their career. They recognized that the values that they carry, that who they are actually mattered a lot more. It brought the right people around them. It created opportunities because people said, I trust you. I trust who you're about. I trust what you're doing. I trust you. Even if, if it doesn't succeed, I know you did it for the right reasons. And I believe that you will do what you say you're going to do. That comes from character. It comes from who you are, not what you do. And I think there's a lot of folks I see, I mean, because I still meet with a lot of entrepreneurs and there's a lot of folks who are doing it for the wrong reasons that they want to go out and, you know, make millions of dollars so that they can go do the thing they really want to go do instead of becoming somebody who would be trustworthy with that and then allowing that to lead them into where they're going to exercise their passions and their interests. And mm -hmm. Well, I, I always say that connections are the most valuable resource and your reputation is the currency. 
And so, yeah, so, well, you, you may. So that leads to the third P, which, which is people. So you had a person or two, there's probably more, but that were very pivotal in your success. Your grandfather-in-law, which I haven't heard that term before, but I get it. I understand it. But your grandfather-in-law was one of those people that led to your success because had you not met him and worked for him and known him, it's not likely that you're sitting at this table in the Matador room at the Standard and, you know, having this conversation about your success. You might have been successful a completely different way. Probably be a doctor, actually, which, you know, the the headwinds they're facing. Who else was were instrumental besides your wife and your grandfather-in-law and perhaps your current partner here in Nashville? But are there other people that you could say, hey, this person is really instrumental because we'd like to know who those people are? Sure. I've been very lucky in people, just across the board, from the parents that raised me and to, you know, the people who mentored me growing up. I guess it's because... Or maybe it was in spite of, I don't know. But I I think that I was driven by a desire to become kind of a good person. I wanted to have whatever I I touched, I wanted to be good. I wanted to be excellent at it. And so that I think attracted people who said, I'll invest in that person because they care. They care about what they're doing, what they're going. And so I'll spend the time. It was worth the investment of their time. So I would, I ended up with friends, parents who I would go and I would just talk to and I would gravitate to them and I'd be asking them questions and they would, so they became informal mentors to me. And I was a voracious reader. I still am. And so I love to learn from what other people have learned. And through that, I ended up with even my father-in-law. When I worked for him, I learned a lot from him. I had a lot of people who, you know, I remember the first loan I ever got, Jason, was was for a $10 million, which at the time, you might as well have said, you need a $1 trillion loan on this bill. Like I had no idea. I had gotten a mortgage for my house and that was it. And I remember I called up a couple of bankers that I knew we had done business with. And I called them and I said, I need to get a loan on this building for $10 million. And I was waiting for them to go, you'll never, you know, and there was this long pause and they said, okay, so here's what you need to do. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. I would love to do business with him, but I actually need to educate him before he's going to be ready to do business. So I had a lot of informal mentors like that throughout my life. And then just just being really authentic with people. Here's what I'm about. And there's, I've had a lot of people go, I'm not about that. And okay, maybe they don't say it, but you know, you have one meeting and, and, and they never circle back. That's okay. Because it's, for me, it's not about trying to, oh, I need to connect with that person. I need it. Because in my experience, you don't connect the dots yourself. You look back and some conversation, and this, this happened just the other day. I was having a dinner with a friend. He and his wife were over and we were talking and, you know, I do a lot of business in Napa. I studied viticulture and enology at UC Davis in my time there. And so I just have a, a real passion around uh, good wine. And I was saying, you know, in Nashville, there's there's a lot of people who like wine, but you don't have a real wine culture and people who want to share that passion with others. And he said, you need to meet the daughter of a mutual friend. Yeah. Did you know she's a level two master sommelier? I had no idea. And that led to us having conversation. And now we're, we're getting ready to launch a business in 20, uh, this year, 2021. Uh, we're getting ready to launch a business that shares wine culture and her passion and our shared passion with the people in this region. Wow. So for those that are listening, if you are a wine aficionado, you love wine. So if for no other reason, <laughs> you might want to get in touch with Andrew for that because you're going to want to find out. Well, let's move to the last two piece. So the last two, the fourth one is preparedness. So the preparedness idea here is what I mean by that when I teach people about this as a key to success is that you got to have the know-how. You, 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 like you couldn't go do a 
you couldn't become a surgeon unless you prepared for that, right? I mean, you could, but one patient, and you're you're done, right? Yeah. So your preparedness came in. It sounds to me like your grandfather-in-law really prepared you. Hey, read this tax book. Hey, look at these deals. And then over time, you started looking at these deals, and that prepared you to be successful. Is that? Do you agree that that's part of the key to your success, or is there something else besides that? I think my preparedness was by accident, but I think it was critical. And so, you know, there's there's the intentional preparedness that comes from study and from being good at what you do. But the accidental preparedness, I think, is just as important. And that's just intentionality about learning, about observing principles. I think a lot of folks that I meet in business go, well, you know, just teach me. I just need the accounting side to be taken care of. But they don't understand. Actually, the accounting is a, is a big part. Cash flow management and balance sheet management. And they go, well, if the, we're making money on the P&L, we should be okay. No, there's, there's cash flow. There's balance sheet. You know, there's three parts to a financial statement. Three parts of financial statement. There's three parts to a financial statement for a reason. And when you only look at one and you think, oh, I'm just managing around my P&L, you miss the principle behind why there are three parts to it. And I think a lot of the preparation that happened by accident was that I was always looking at why do I believe this business is going to be successful? Why do I think that's a good deal? Why do, do I think there's opportunity there? What's the downside? I was always looking behind the surface, right? And the surface is important, but the preparedness also came just from being good at what I did, that I had to be excellent at what I was doing. And if I wasn't excellent, I would never have had the opportunity to learn and be prepared or um, be in a position to learn all the other components. In other words, I had to be good at managing a portfolio of assets in order to be in a place to walk with those clients through their challenges in 2008, 2009, 2010, and then be able to get the information, the knowledge, the experience of underwriting businesses in that. And so there's the direct intentional preparation. I have to be good at what I do in order to earn. That's that's the price of admission. That's how you get a seat at the table. But how you keep your seat at the table is you continue to learn and understand the principles behind things. And that happens. It's less intentional and focused and saying, I need to learn this. And it's more just keeping your eyes open and being aware and awake. Yeah. So the last P is plan. And of course, everyone will forgive me for using another P, but that's why we're doing it. It's five P so you can remember that. But plan really refers to not business plans, because it's probably not likely that you sat down and wrote out a business plan. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. Most successful entrepreneurs I find didn't do that. But what I mean by plan is the ability to obtain or a strategy to obtain and deploy the resources, specifically financial resources required to make your venture work. So tell me about how that played into your success. Well, I love plans and I love planning. And I love the saying that if you want to make God laugh, make a plan. That's number one. Number two, I think it was Eisenhower who said, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And I found that to be the case that you can't, if you have no target to shoot at, if you don't understand where you're going, you cannot build a plan around that. You can't execute around that. But often the, um, the plan will change as you get, or I think it's Mike Tyson who said, everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the face. <laughs> and I found that to be true that, you know, I didn't plan. If I look back, it wasn't the plans that I made that succeeded, that have like created this arc of my life. It's really the process of saying, what's that thing in me that I want to release into the world? And how do I do that? Okay, I'm going to plan to do that. And then along the way, it's, I think I'm going to medical school. No, you're not. 
you're going to get pulled into this. But the process of going to medical school and taking that year is what positioned me to be ready for that other opportunity. So plans, I think, are really, really important, but not because the plan is so important, but because it gives you a path to walk down. And then as you start walking down that path, you're going to realize, oh, that's a dead end. But this door opened up that I never would have been prepared for had I not walked down that that stretch. Yeah. Well, and part of that too is is the financial resources. You told the story about needing to borrow $10 million for that building and you went to the banker and you're like, hey, I need to borrow $10 million. That was your plan. Like, I need 10. Like, what's my plan to get there? How do I obtain and deploy the resources in order to be successful? Now, I will make a, a grand statement here that I think everybody would agree with. If you're in the business you're in, private equity, there is a lot of planning in terms of financial resources that are required because you can't just say, hey, I like your $50 million business. Let me write you a check. You might be able to do that, but that's not the proper way to obtain and deploy those resources, right? Absolutely not. No, we, and, and we, just to be clear, we have a 100-day plan. What needs to happen in the first 100 days? What must happen in this business? So th- I'm not suggesting that plans are not critical for execution. We're just aware, and I'm aware that that 100-day plan will likely not look exactly the way that I think it's going to look as we get in there and a new opportunity comes up. Or, you know, I'll just give an example. If you were a PPE provider at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, you had a plan that looked very different than what happened, what ended up happening. But if you're not intentional about making sure your operations are good, that you're financially strong, that you're not executing well, when those opportunities come up, you're not going to be ready for it. In fact, one of my favorite Winston Churchill lines is, quotes is, that there comes a time in every man's life where he's tapped on the shoulder and asked to do a very special thing, uniquely fitted for his talents. What a shame it would be if he was unprepared and incapable at what would be his finest moment or finest hour. I love that idea that you prepare not and you plan not just because you can see the path forward and you know where you're going to end up, but you plan and you prepare because as you walk through, you're going to have an opportunity where fate's going to tap you on the shoulder and ask you to do a very special thing, uniquely fitted for your talents. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that moment. And so that's what planning helps you do is be ready for that moment. Well, so what, as we kind of conclude our conversation today, what is there anything specific that you would like to share with our audience? Now, these, this audience is full of entrepreneurs and business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs and business owners. What would you like to share with them? Are there any pieces of advice you would give them about how to be successful? Yes, absolutely. First, become the right person. Focus on your character, on your values, on who you are and what you want to release into the world. Nothing else really matters. You're going to get to the end of your life. And if you've made a whole bunch of money and have a bunch of houses and stuff, it doesn't. you're going to look back. And if you didn't make the world better because of your impact on it, and if you didn't express the passion that was in you to express, and that passion can be everything from creative to changing your community, whatever it is that you will live with regret. That is your unique note to play at this moment in time. And so I would say, number one, focus on that. And that is a a discovery process. So you may not know what that is. Don't chase the money. Don't say, I'm just doing this. And then I'm going to use this to fuel what I want to do. Focus on what it is that you love to do, what it is that you're curious about, what keeps you coming back to go, man, I just want to go back. I want to do that again. I want to do that again and cultivate that. And another thing is be curious. Just learn as much as you possibly can about everything. You know, I studied viticulture and enology. I don't know how this venture is going to go, but I never would have been ready for this venture or open to it had I not studied it and learned about it before. So just 
continue to be curious, pull on the thread, and eventually you'll end up in the right place. So how would people get in touch with you? I don't have Facebook or Instagram or any of the social media. The only one I'm on is LinkedIn. And please, please, please do not try to friend me um, if we haven't connected, because I don't accept my, my LinkedIn. I know every single person on there. However, if you want to connect with me, you can email me at andrew at markhamcp.com. Go to our website, markhamcp.com, and you can submit, you know, like a, there's a contact. I'm very easy to get a hold of. But once we connect, um, I'm going to add you to my LinkedIn if you want that. But just reach out. I'd love to talk to people. Uh, I'd love to help people kind of process through what their next step is or uh, if they have a business idea they want to do. I love working with good entrepreneurs who want to do something good in the world and maybe need a little bit of help or insight or advice on how to make that happen. So spell Markham for us. M-A-R-K-H-A-M. M-A-R-K-H-A-M. Yeah. So we want to make sure they spell it right if they're writing it down. Yeah. Andrew Kilpatrick, you can Google search me and it's, it's, you know, probably on the third page. (laughs) Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being here. I know that, you know, when you and I first met, it was casually at a mixer, you know, event. And then we were reintroduced later and had lunch. And there's not a lot of people that I am that hugely impressed with the first time I meet the way that I was with you. So I'm honored to know that you're a friend of mine, that we're acquaintances, and I appreciate you being here on my podcast, The Root of All Success. So thank you for sharing your story. I appreciate it very much. It's my pleasure, Jason, and thank you for doing this. I think it's really, really helpful and will be important. Candidly, I wish this podcast existed when I had first started into business. I think it would have been helpful to avoid a lot of the potholes I hit. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Well, so there you have it, folks. That's a wrap on this podcast. I think that you'll see in this story of this one successful entrepreneur, Andrew Kilpatrick, that my theory still holds true, that passion and place and people and preparedness and plan all played a part into his huge levels of success as a private equity company owner, formerly a broker, and now he's buying and selling businesses and helping people get the results they want out of life. So I hope that this was helpful for you. If you're listening on a a podcast player, please bookmark it. Subscribe to this podcast, The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan. If you're watching on YouTube, I would appreciate if you subscribe to my YouTube channel. I post new content every single week, at least a couple of videos, not even related to the podcast, just other stuff for entrepreneurs, leaders, for financial literacy, sales, etc. And I also do some videos on uh, spirituality and faith. If you're interested in finding out what your probability of success is as an entrepreneur, I have a special offer for you, and that is this. If you will go to therealjasonduncan.com slash success, you can take an assessment. It's a free assessment. You can download it, take the assessment, and it will give you an indication of your probability of success as it relates to those five Ps that we talked about on the podcast today. After you complete the assessment, you'll get a personalized PDF report that shows you kind of where you are. Now, just because you don't have 100% on all five Ps today, as illustrated in Andrew's story, doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. But it will tell you what you need to shore up so that you can get there. Because we don't all start out of the gate 100% running as fast as we can go. We learn over time. As Andrew indicated, there's a lot of accidents, happy accidents that happen throughout the process. Things that you weren't planning on but happen and that all contribute to your success. So go to therealjasonduncan.com slash success and take that assessment for free today. That is my gift to you. Thank you for listening. Well, please join me on the next episode when I talk with yet another super successful entrepreneur on his or her journey to success. And until then, remember, Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan. 
If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.